good evening, good night, wherever or whoever you may be. I am Alan Arante, and this is The Recluse Podcast. I had the pleasure of talking to Jeannie Marie Almo. Jeannie is 73 years old. She has traveled the world. She lived in Malta as a young girl. She owned a vineyard. She lectured in anatomy courses and conducted research on cadavers. She was studying pelvic fractures. She is the daughter of pioneer viticulturist and professor at UC Davis, Dr. Harold Paul Omo. He was an expert in the scientific study of grapes and their production of wine. He was a decorated thinker and respected by his community. He created over 30 grape varieties now called Omo grapes, and he was a big influence on Jeannie uh, throughout her whole life. Jeannie Marie Omo is far too interesting and special to be captured in a in an introduction like this. The interview reminded me about how personal and fragile these conversations are. She invited me into her home. We sat in her kitchen, just the two of us. We got to know each other. And I really do value that trust that is fostered in these conversations. I am utterly in her debt. We drank wine together and we enjoyed each other's company, I believe. So without further delay, this is a portrait of Jeannie Marie Almo. Okay, so we are officially on the record. It is Monday, January 13th, 5.22 in the afternoon. I have two questions. Who the hell are you? How the hell are you? My name is Jeannie Marie Omo, and I am wonderful. <laughs> I feel great. This has been a long time coming. I met you, I don't know, maybe months ago by now. Yeah, because of Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah, we have a mutual friend, uh, Will, um, who you know very well. He's an artist around here, around town. Um, so what, you, we, what year were you born and where were you born? I was born June 11th, 1946. I was born illegitimate nine months after the end of World War II. So I figured I was somebody's celebration. <laughs> oh, and, really? And then I was adopted when I was 15 days old. And from that moment on, my life has been pretty incredible. Um, I assume you don't remember anything pre-adoption? Actually, that would be very safe to say. Yeah. <laughs> Though my earliest memories are around 16, 18 months. I can actually remember really? grandpa taking me outside for a picture <laughs> and the lawn was wet. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, um, But just to add something. Sure. In... Um, when I was 60, California, 2006, California let us get our adoption papers. And my father was in the process of dying. And so I had to concentrate on him and take care of him. But after he passed in June, around November, I, I went and got the envelope they had given me. And not me, but a friend who's so good on the computer was able to find out, find that I had a sister. My mother wow. died, but I had a sister how he did it, I don't know, because both of us have been married four times and our names had oh changed. Oh, my goodness. That's another long story. But anyway, we found each other. And that I was 60. She was 62. And I love her so much. And we've been together ever since. And she lives in Laguna Beach. Wow. They didn't need her. She's one of, I believe it was five children or six. Not her. Excuse me. My mother was. And nobody knew she was pregnant. She hid it so well. And they lived in Los Angeles, but then she went up to Sacramento. And I was born in mm -hmm. Sacramento and then adopted through the welfare of Catholics. So um, 
I'm not sure. Maybe you said it. it was your sister also adopted, or no, your mother? She she also was illegitimate, and my mother kept her. That was hard. Mm-hmm. And I think my mother was a good person, but she mm-hmm. she's alcoholic, and she wanted to be loved so much. And you imagine in the 40s, if you're if you're quote unquote easy or something like that, you know, people didn't marry you, and you know, I don't make any judgment. Because mm-hmm. you have no idea about the times. I'm grateful that she gave me up. She gave me a great life. And I know every day on my birthday, she wondered how I was. And I used to always wow. send her a mental message that I'm okay, mom. Thanks. Because I had wonderful parents that I loved. Yes. I will always have love. And I think everything good in me is because of them. Mm. Yeah. Did- but it was wonderful to meet my sister and meet cousins and all that and they got to meet my kids and i had never known a single person of blood behind me really in front of me until you were 60 oh i'm sorry can you explain Uh, so yeah so in other words i didn't know anybody who was related to me by blood except my children my grandchildren wow after me then meeting my sister i I have pictures i know my mother my grandmother i have the greatest aunt it's like and all these are my blood. It's amazing. Right. And then we did the DNA, the, the checkout. And it turns out we're 26% not, I mean, American Indian. No is, kidding. <laughs> but a lot wow. of specifics we don't know because uh, the grandmother came from Mexico. And uh, from and she, I think it was one of those stories. That she was from a kind of wealthy family that had come over from Europe. And I think she got pregnant, and mm. she was she never went back. I think she was kicked out. We don't know for sure, but that's kind of what we picked up mm. on. And then her husband, who was an electrician, died very young, like at twenty three. But yeah. anyway, I have my sister, and that's great, and my wow. cousin, nieces and nephews, and uh, and their children. So I have this wonderful family. Yeah. Uh, how old were you when you found out that you were adopted? Have you always known? Always as- known. Really? I don't ever remember being told. And I <laughs> had two just a brothers fact. who weren't adopted. My mother had a, had a baby that died at birth, and they got the doctor. And this is 1946, said, right, you need right. a baby. So a month later, they got me. So John wow. Lennon born and died May 22nd, and I was born June 11th. So I kind of like wow. we both had the double digits. Mm-hmm. And I thank him, too. And my father said that to me once. He said, you know. It broke our heart when John Raymond died, but if he hadn't died, we never would have had you, and you're the spice in our life. <laughs> that's what he told me, wow. so that's pretty sweet. Yeah. You had So do you have uh, an older brother, or you I said did. you had They're two? both passed away. Oh, I see. I had a brother five years older and a brother five years younger mm-hmm. that were their natural, but they both uh, died of cancer, and they both smoked a lot. So. Oh, really? Did they die of lung cancer? Not lung, but my older brother died of lymphoma. And my mm. younger brother died of so many different things. It's like he had cancer of the colon and heart attacks, yeah. and he just couldn't stop smoking. Shows you and, how an addiction is such a powerful thing. Yeah. And, and did they? Uh, what? How old were they when they passed away? Um, my older brother was sixty-eight, mm. and my younger brother—I can't believe he made it to sixty. We thought really he actually died before. So I, I mean, he made it a lot longer than we thought. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just how he approached life. I remember saying to him, Dan, have you thought about quitting smoking? He said, oh, no, that'd kill me. <laughs> really? So he knew he would never stop. No, he knew he'd never stop. Wow. And uh, so I wish them well. You know, we mm-hmm. uh, we 
when we were young, we were really close. When we got older, we weren't that close. And when you say older, do you mean in the teens, the 20s? I think more like the the th- tw- 30s, maybe. Oh, really? Late 20s and wow. 30s. Wow. That's know. where I am now. So I, I have a yeah. two – well, I have three sisters and a brother – and we're all very close. I mean, you know, we don't get into fights or anything like that. But I'm uh, just turned thirty, and I sort of wonder what's going to happen in the next ten years. Well, I Do don't we think it has to be that way? I think it depends on them. My older brother was bipolar, was schizophrenic, manic depressive, mm. and did a lot of things, and he just struggled. That's why I hope he's happy now. Right. He and so you can't really judge. My parents were great and raised all three of us, but. My brothers had a totally different attitude, mm. and I think it did bother them later that I was adopted and I would be getting a third. <laughs> oh, really? No, that could be a bit of speculation. I don't even want to go there. Yeah. You know, we had a very we had we actually had a pretty loving life growing up. It was kind of yeah. a Norman Rockwell, mm. except that for most families. By the way, my father was a professor of viticulture at Davis. Wow. Second viticulturist in America. So, Second, you said. Yeah. What does that mean? Bialetti was the first. I guess there was a woman for about a year, but then Bialetti didn't get along with her and fired her, and then Dad was hired. Wow. And that's 1930. So you're saying it sort of wasn't really a thing. I mean, no. schools didn't have no. these experts. In fact, that's what my dad did in the 40s was go to Afghanistan <laughs> and Iran and Pakistan, all these areas. There's a, If you look him up on Wikipedia, Dr. Harold Piomo, there's so much that... I don't want to just sit here and apple <laughs> at you, but I'm very proud of him. And he went yeah. over there in 1947, 48. Wow. Put us on the island of Madeira. Right. He went off and he'd, he'd either be in a car, on a donkey, on horseback, or walking. And in the Wikipedia articles, there's a whole map. It shows the area he covered. And he collected all the disease resistant, the old wow. plants. Wow. From the old Fertile Crescent. War had started, but it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't uh, devastated like it is now. Right. And actually, Dad took a lot of photographs. And after he died, they're all on glass panels. Yeah. And I took it and donated it to the Afghan Museum oh, wow. in, uh, in Utah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And so, because I thought, this is what your, your country looked like at one time. Wow. And anyway, he, he sent those back to the United States. And that was the basic research for... So much like walnuts and pistachios. Wow, he's sort of like a Darwin, you know, going to these lands <laughs> and you know grabbing like all a, these samples. But he had so many near misses that they labeled him the <laughs> Indiana Jones of viticulture. He had so many episodes that he almost died. <laughs> no and, kidding. Yeah, it's really. I think one day it would be great if they did a movie because he was this professor, this young, good-looking guy. He had a rug which I still have. He bought for five dollars. It's beautiful. Persian rug, it's just aqua. It's uh, not aqua. It's burgundy and black, so the wine doesn't show. And he carried that, and he'd sleep on that up in the mountains. Wow. And he would go away for about four months, Mom said, and come back to see us in, on Madeira, and uh, he would be skinny and scrawny, and so they'd fatten him up. He'd stay there, rest, and get stronger. <laughs> then he'd go back. And he did that for like a year and a half. Wow. And... He sent so many specimens to the United States, and he realized something has to preserve these. So he started mm. the geoplasm. The it's like a huge um, uh, greenhouse in Davis, and they keep every every grape there is, and it will always be oh, disease wow. free. So if people want cuttings or places 
they want to breed. And these plants know, are alive. They keep them in a greenhouse. Alive. Yes, yes. And he started that. I can't wow. remember. That's all in Wikipedia. Oh, my goodness. My brain can't keep it all. But it's kind of, it's, they're little things I love to throw out because they're so interesting. Like, Dad um, discovered that every variety, every grape variety, their seed has markings like fingerprints. Oh, wow. So after yeah. Prohibition, he went around California and told people what variety of grapes they had. And I remember Segesio, Pete Segesio, they came up to me and hugged me and said, you know, if it wasn't for your father, we never could have sold our grapes as a variety. It was just red and white. That's all we knew we had. And right. so it saved a lot of the industry. I mean, hmm. it's just... It's amazing the little things that he did. The public doesn't know of him, but wine people know of him. Right. And because, I mean, he was, anybody studying knows of him. Mm. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, it's okay. Uh, okay. You want to, you can let them in. I mean, they might bark a little bit and then I'm sure they'll relax. Stop barking. Yeah, if I let them in. You know, so much has happened in my life and especially like when I've moved here, I retired here from Davis. And you get to talking because you want people to know about it. But I realize I have done so much and so much has happened that <laughs> it kind of blows people away. And I think I lost friends because it comes out like bragging and I don't really want really? it to be. What do you mean? Like what Like what are some examples? Okay. Like, well, um, it's like uh, I'll give you some examples. Like, okay, we didn't. We, okay, we lived on the island of Madeira, but then we also lived in Australia for a year. Dad went over there. Oh. They wanted to know if they could grow grapes mm-hmm. in the area, and he changed Australia. And there's even a wine called Omo's Reward in honor of Dr. Omo, who showed us our beautiful land could grow such great mm-hmm. grapes. And is that your father that That's you're talking dad. about? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so he was there on sabbatical, so I lived, I went with him. Well, we don't just go. My mother is an avid art and music lover. So we get on a ship, and I got to be on a ship, beautiful ship. And you remember that? Orchidies. Oh, yeah. How old are you? What, 10? Oh, okay. Yeah, but I remember, and (laughs) we were on it for six weeks. And it's like, I know it was special, but you don't really know how special at that age. Six weeks going from San Francisco to Hawaii, and then Fiji and New Guinea and around New Zealand. Oh my and goodness. And then over to Australia and we started on the East Coast and going around Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide, and we ended up in Perth and I lived in mm. Perth in the Netherlands in Perth for a year. Um then flew back. Then when we lived wow. on the island of Malta in 1962 to 63 because they were going to go independent and they asked my dad to come and uh Tell them how to grow grapes. And they grew grapes like squash on the ground. Hmm. And we were on a ship again. I guess that's what, I mean, something like that is pretty special, you yeah. know. And it was another beautiful Orient Wines. And the British first class is just, you're just treated so special. I miss that <laughs> so much. It was great. And that time we went from San Francisco to Hawaii to Yokohama, Kobe, on a Singapore ship. on a ship. Oh, goodness. Which I love because you unpack once and then you go out. Was was there onboard? I don't know what you would call it, but onboard entertainment where they're like singers in the ballrooms of the I'm ships. Sure, I'm sure. I didn't really go into the ballrooms. So I was 15, so I mm. wasn't drinking legally. And, <laughs> no, it was, but there was lots. 
there was like the pool area. And I think of the banquets that they would serve out around the pool. I've never seen such beautiful food. It's like out of a movie. I kind of expected it when I went to Alaska. It's totally different. Oh, my gosh. I realize now how fortunate I was. It was so elegant. Mm-hmm. And tea time, because it was a British lines. Mm-hmm. I love tea time. We'd go, and you always dress nice, and you always – I was raised with always having manners. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what are often, what are manners? Uh, manners where you don't chew with your mouth open. You you. I didn't learn how to not interrupt. I'm still bad at that, but I'm working on it. <laughs> and um, you held the fork correctly. Now, mm-hmm. because it's British, I've always learned to, to eat. <laughs> With my fork upside down and push, you push the food on. That's a British. Oh, one. interesting. But you learn to, you know, eat correctly. And then when you're done, if you're not done, let's say you go to the restroom, you put your forks, um, cross on your plate, fork and knife across on your plate. That told the servant, the steward not to take it. When you're mm-hmm. done, you put the two together and put it to the left. <laughs> Things like that. And, and, uh, and growing up, my parents had many, many, cocktail parties and so we had to learn mm. and dinner parties and we always learned to set the table and we'd serve and you you know you put you serve them on the left and take it away on the right lots yeah. of things like that you know oh, and i was going to say earlier i mentioned that i grew up like in a beautiful norman rockwell world except i was more fortunate than that because dad had so many foreign students so we had every color, every nationality. Oh, wow. Coming to your home? Coming into our home, especially, and you're talking, Davis was 5,000 when I was born. So maybe it was later, <clears throat> excuse me, in the 50s, like 10,000. I mean, it didn't really get big till the 70s. Right. And I can remember one Thanksgiving, my we had a dinner party. My mom always cooked for everybody, and dad would bring home all the foreign students because Thanksgiving is an American holiday. And they're away from home also, probably. I counted. We had 27 people for dinner, and I went around and counted 13 different countries. Wow. Isn't that... I don't even know if I could name 13 right now, Mm. but I just felt, wow, that's so cool. I mean, and they were, you know, they were exposed to a lot of the American ways, and we got to be exposed to their ways and some of the best conversations. And us kids were not – we were allowed to be in there as long as we behaved, you know. Yeah. We weren't, like, shut off. And I love mm. that mm. because I learned how to be around and appreciate good conversation. Yeah. Um, so you've, I, I figure if you were, you, know, you were young when this was happening, you've always had – an open mind then probably anywhere you've gone. Cause I, you know, people who stay in the same city, you know, say for instance, a city like Westlake where you don't see that many, uh, black people, for instance. Right. Um, so sometimes people don't know how to act, uh, you know, they think they, for me, I never was an issue because we always had them in our home. And I do remember, it's funny how children can be very cruel. Yes. I am, you can yes. see, I am French, Spanish and, Navajo. I am. I have a dark complexion, not super dark, but mm-hmm. I'm always complexion. And I remember in eighth grade in Davis, this one boy, he called me the N word, and I didn't know what it meant. And I think, I mean, he used to. He used and you to hadn't heard it before all the time. And I think it's he probably liked me, but a kid doesn't know that. <laughs> and just, and I remember going home and asking my parents what that meant. No, I hadn't heard it. I think I was in fourth grade or something, mm-hmm. but I hadn't really heard it because that word was never used. Yeah. Um, even though at that time, um, Brazilian nuts were mm-hmm. called that. My parents said, no, we don't use that. 
But I remember asking my parents, why did he call me that? And she said, well, one, because be, probably because he's heard it from his parents. But she said, mm. it shows his ignorance. She said, it's a bad name that's used for black people with black skin. And I said, well, I am probably the darkest in the class. Yeah. I'm not that. I remember going back and telling him, okay, whitey. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Do you remember his name? That I boy's do. name? I do. And he's quite a, he became a very big farmer, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> so, so your father, um, you know, he was an expert in wine and grapes yes. and had a, a PhD, it sounds like. Uh, was he a, yeah. a, a, a a child on a farm in his youth, or how did he come no, to be he grew interested? Up in San Francisco, and but he always liked growing. And he would. Um, they grew up in the Mission District in San Francisco, and mm. he had uh, two brothers and a sister. And the oldest brother worked so the dad and his other brother could go to college, and the other one became a dentist. And uh, dad knew he wanted to work. He thought he was going to go into fruit trees and he'd always be off planting in a little garden any of the any of the you know undeveloped uh garden i mean undeveloped uh, plots and i can he actually had a nickname that went followed him throughout his life at the university we knew him as harold his name was mm -hmm. harold uh paul omo and but his mother said to his brothers this is when he was probably in his early teens where is that damn jackrabbit bring him home for dinner <laughs> One brother Jack Rabbit. called him Rabbit till he died, and Jack caught on, and everybody in school called him Jack. <laughs> and even at the university, they called him Jack Omo. And is that because... And I uh, didn't even find that out until I was 40. And is the joke sort of that he's like a rabbit in a patch? He was it, always down... Yeah, he was always gone, and and I don't think the university knows. It was just his, his name, but it started because he was always working in the soil, always growing stuff. Mm. So when... Uh, so he thought he'd go into pomology, but you know, 1930s, you go where the job is, and a job right. opened up in viticulture. Mm -hmm. And what he was was a geneticist. His PhD was oh, in plant genetics, and wow. that's what he spent his life doing. If he had gone into palm, into uh, uh, walnuts or something, he probably would have excelled in <laughs> that because Dad was a scientist. He loved mm. what he did. Mm -hmm. I'm very glad he went into grapes and wine because that was yeah. better for us. <laughs> I've yeah. never had a good walnut wine I liked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, he, no, I think he just, he he was not a person. He was very modest. He didn't like, he didn't like a lot of publicity. He wanted to be left alone. Wow. And to do his work? To do his work. And people would say, write a book, write a book. And a lot <laughs> of people did. But dad didn't that much because he was too busy writing you know, uh, doing research that was paying off. And we're talking not like DNA now. We're talking mm -hmm. where when he did a, bread a new grape, he would, you know, mark off the vineyard. He would go with a paintbrush and pollen and hit them. Oh. Then he would grow. It took like four years to get enough to make a little tiny bottle of wine, taste it, <laughs> and decide which is this is an example, like yeah. 20, though he had hundreds. 20, okay, number two and number seven and eight I liked. So we we take those. And then we do another cross. I mean, and that's oh. how we develop varieties. And sometimes it would be anywhere between 15 and 25 years before he, you know, had the grain. Wow. So it's a lifetime of work, a lifetime of knowledge. Um, at he, at the end. Stopped. He never stopped. In fact, when he was sick, he was in, when he had fallen, his hip had broken and he was in the hospital. He was 96, mm. a month shy of 96. Wow. I remember saying to dad, 
you know, Dad, it's okay. Mom's waiting, and you can go if you want to. And he goes, oh, no, I can't go. I have too much to do. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, okay, Dad, then let's get (laughs) ready so you can get back home. And I just think he died thinking he was going to go back home. He just died really? to sleep. Really? Yeah. To work? To read? Or what, yeah, what well, did he want to do? He was Professor Emeritus, and he went to work every day till he was 91. Wow. They used to joke that they saw him more than the doctors on staff, the professors on staff. But he, and then they moved him. He, he had trouble getting into work, so we turned his living room into his office. No, he worked, and he patented his last grape when he was 96. Yeah, wow. He, and he did a lot of table grapes and he did. And what, what do you grapes. mean by that? Just what, what oh, that's grapes that you would you eat? eat? Like a red seedless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of his famous ones was Ruby Red, which has four seeds in it, but it's a huge grape that is so mm-hmm. delicious. Japan. You see it like a plum it. almost? Yeah, it's like not even that. It's like it's so good and juicy, you don't even notice. And you can spit out the seeds <laughs> and just chew them. But it's a huge <laughs> grape, it's really good. Yeah. If you have a chance, try it. It's called it's a red globe. That's I think mm. I said ruby red. That was a different grape. It was the red globe. So your father, he was a clearly a smart man. Right. What was he also a good man? I would have to say probably the most honest man I've ever known in my life. My father now was a very strict Catholic, which was you know, growing up it's you have to do all that. Now mm-hmm. I didn't stay with that, but my father never pushed it on people. He just lived it. He truly was an honest man. And I love that. And mom became a Catholic for him, but then she kind of stopped going. But the principles never left, which was kindness mm. and to be, to be honest. I mean, he was so honest. Mom would say, Can you drop Jeannie <laughs> off at school and he'd be in a university car. He goes, no, Helen. This is the university car. I cannot use it personal. <laughs> Harold, you're going right by the school. Can't <laughs> and he wouldn't. He he was very he was a very very patient person. Mm. I mean he raised me, he had to be patient. <laughs> right. And I think he was and he was so he was so smart, he was so successful that there's that that pressure kind of put on us. He didn't mm. put it on. But you feel like you have to do. And I know for myself and my life, and it was, I mean, I've gone through enough therapy, I totally realized and was able to talk to my father before he died Mm. and to explain why so many things happened. But I'll tell you, I became very successful woman. And I think that's because of that. Mm. I always joked that if I'd been born 30 years later, I'd be diagnosed and put on medication, but instead I just became successful. I, I went to Davis and I graduated high honors, went to UCSF for physical therapy, had a daughter during that time. Then I got married and we lived out on a farm and we raised all our own vegetables while I went to school. And then I went to graduate school in San Francisco. Then I came back. And I ended up seven years later going back and went to med school uh, and got my master's in anatomy. And I taught wow. anatomy dissection to first-year med students. Wow. And also that whole time, I was back on the family farm, and Dad had split it up amongst us three kids. So I had mm. 70 acres, mm-hmm. and I went organic in 1970. 70. Wow. And I went organic in 1984. So I managed that farm, but Stuart Dixon of Stone Free Farm, he, he leased it. 
started out with like two acres and ended up with 15. And I had the most beautiful food in the whole world. We were the first mm. to bring the baby vegetables to Sacramento. <laughs> and so, uh, I mean, it just kind of goes on and on. That was one of the things that people I was talking with here, she said, I remember somebody said, and I realized right then I have to quit talking about myself. She said, well, why didn't you go to med school? I was talking about how I taught anatomy. Mm -hmm. I said, well, why didn't you just become a doctor? Why didn't you go to med school? And I said, well, I did go to med school. I had to to get my master's. But right. I didn't want to be a doctor because I wanted my family first. I didn't mm. want to. I know me. I would be at the hospital if anybody was not doing well. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they've talked to me since. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like I just – to me, it was just my life, and it is my life, and I'm not done. Mm. I mean, I'm 73. Yeah. I'll be 74 in June, and I I love this. Yeah. I love this life. I've just come to appreciate even more and more, mm. you know, as I've gotten older. What, what uh, sort of things have you learned to not take for granted? You know, you've been alive for 73 years. Yeah. Um, or actually, have you ever taken things for granted? Time? Well, I think we all do when we're young and stuff like that, but... I think the most important thing I've learned is uh, not to be so hard on myself. I, my philosophy, I live my life by the four agreements by Miguel Ruiz. And I really recommend it to anybody because we really do inflict most pain on ourselves. And it really yeah. gives you, gives you the tools not to. And I am so grateful every day. If I wake up, it's a good day. Mm -hmm. That's the way I approach my life. And I think back, but I've forgiven myself. I mean, yeah. I made mistakes, and especially those of us raised in the 50s, you grow up, get married, and live happily ever after. And that's just not <laughs> real. Life is hard. It's yeah. all worth it. But life is finding joy, you know, in between those hard times because they'll always mm. come, but the good times will always come back if you allow yourself right. to know that. So I would say for me, that's what I appreciate. When something Hard happens. I know it's mm. going to pass. You know, mm -hmm. it'll be a memory. That was my slogan to get me through grad school. One day, <laughs> this will be a memory. And it is. And I pray to God I never take another class in my life. <laughs> uh, how long did you teach? Um, about about four years, five years at UCD. I I would lecture to undergraduates and teach them. And then with the – and I was working with Pat Patterson, Hugh Patterson. He was the main professor. And I loved him. And he was my major professor. Mm. And I got, I did my master's under him. Ah. And he, uh, he had me come in and help when you have a hundred med students and you have 25 uh, bodies because you have four to a body. And so we would go through and dissect it. And I loved it. I have probably dissected a hundred bodies. Really? And I think we're so oh. beautiful. I just think. Wow. I think it's amazing how we're built, you know. And my mother, because of that, was a cadaver. And I'm going to be a cadaver. Donate oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, you want to give back. I wanted to give it to Davis, but they won't come down past oh. <laughs> Paso Robles, so I, I'm going to give it to UCLA. Wow. I, it, it's very interesting how casual yeah. you can you can say that. I um, can remember saying that to my major professor <laughs> because my research was on the pelvis because pelvic fractures mm. bled a lot. And so I needed a fresh pelvis. So this man had donated his body. Oh. So we're there the next morning. He had died the night before. I hope this isn't too much. For no, please, audience. please. It's, it's perfect. We're cutting him off at the waist. And then I had to cut both legs off. And I remember stopping and looking up at Pat saying, Pat, 
does it bother you that this doesn't bother us? <laughs> and he said, I think we just have such a good grasp on that the, body, the human has left. This is a body. But we're always grateful for that. And I was so grateful that he, uh, he gave us his body and I could do my research. And right. So, um, but it never was like horrible. Well, you, I mean, you're, what you're telling me is you literally would cut into people's bodies. Yes. And you said. Most of the time they've been in a bag of formalin so that they will be preserved. But this mm-hmm. one was fresh. He died the night before. Not frozen or not frozen, no. but not cool. Yeah, he was cool. To put him in a. Yeah, because he came. They had to preserve him. He died in Sacramento. And right. They put him in a truck and brought it to UC Davis. And at that time, the school was in Davis. Now it's mm-hmm. all in Sacramento. Right. But I remember, um, and he had died of AIDS. And this was back, you know, in the early, in the 80s. And um, mm. we weren't sure, but we had masks and everything. And I do oh. remember, because we were working, and when you're using like a, a chainsaw, uh, cutting somebody, a bone saw, it can splatter. Well, right, right. we got it all done. We all cleaned up. We took off our our masks and gloves. And then I took off my jacket and I went, oh, my God, I forgot. I've got blood on my buttons. I'm opening my, taking my lab coat off. And I said to my family, if I get AIDS, it's not, it's because of my research. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I never did. So that was good. Wow. So you said that um, you were doing pelvis research? Um, the pelvic fractures. Oh, pelvic fractures, yeah, yes. bleed so much. The and bone so itself, the bone itself would bleed. Is yes. that what you're saying? And I, and um, you and can you... see why, because when I, uh, thank you. Yeah. When I, daughter of a viticulturist always shares wine. <laughs> <laughs> what are, what are, just a side note, what are we drinking, by the way? Oh, yeah, we're drinking a really nice Sylvaner by Scribe. Mm. And, uh, it's a 2017. What I love, it's only 11% alcohol, but it's a mm-hmm. delicious white. It's very good. It's got a lot of uh, floral and a lot of, but not sweet. Yeah. Well, thank you for this. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for having me. Um, yes. I'm just, I'm just floored with how casual you can, um, and I, I'm not, I'm not disgusted. I'm not shocked, no. but it's very interesting to me how casual um, you can talk about these things and how casual it was it even was, when you did it. And it even surprised me. I, mean, I remember asking him, but it was just, it was so beautiful to me and I felt so fortunate and I loved it, but I also grew up hunting. That might have been why. Oh, interesting. I grew up, you know, shooting dove, pheasant. Um, and eating it. turkeys. Oh, yeah. And I would clean it. You earn the right when you mm. hunt. You And we grew up with great respect for guns. Every time we'd go out, we'd have to come back in and clean it. You mm-hmm. know. Would you do that with your father? Well, no. You know what's amazing? My my uncles kind of taught me, but when I was, I was like... 11 years old and my brother was six. We each had our own 22 and we would go out by ourselves and shoot jackrabbits in the orchard. Cause my dad, well, when we were eight, my dad bought a farm outside of Davis and that's when we moved out to the country. Cause he mm. always loved being out in the country. Yeah. And, uh, we would go out and they trusted us and there was really nobody around. There was a freeway though and 22s can go really long, but mm. we never. We learned to shoot those rabbits and drop it because it cries like a baby if you if you wound it. So you we they were pests in the in the orchard, but you yeah. learned to drop it. It, it was a right kill. And then sometimes we'd be bored and we'd go sit on the levee. I had Pewter Creek in my backyard, and it was quite wide. And 
The university always burnt off at that time in the 50s, burnt mm. off the other side of the webby. Ours was very lush and lots of plants. <laughs> so we would sit on our side and we, we would compete and sh- make a can dance on the other side. Man, we were so good. <laughs> so maybe because death mm. and f- was something I was raised with. I held mm. chickens while dad chopped the head off. You know? Really? I had to learn how to, dunk, to clean it. Um, I raised two lambs that I... I killed and I hung and bled out and I skipped them and I gutted them. And I may tell you, it is wow. a lot of work, but I loved it. And then we we cooked them in a big pit. It was really cool. That's but I just, yeah, I, I never wanted to have anything hurt. Right, right. It wasn't about suffering. rabbits because I don't think I could kill them fast enough. Mm. And I never want to wound an animal. I want it. If I, right. if I want it for the food, then I want to kill it. And I always went behind the lamb. It never knew. Right. So that's interesting. So you're saying in a way uh, you were almost primed. That experience primed you so you weren't shocked when you – or maybe you were when you saw your first body. No, I never was. I started out nursing in 1964 at University of Arizona. But I really majored more in boys at that time because I was out of a Catholic boarding school. <laughs> but I remember, and back then as a freshman, we didn't dissect the bodies. We just got to see them. Mm. I loved it. It was love at first sight. I just right. wanted to know more. I just wanted to know how. you know. And then I went back to college seven years later because I got married and had a daughter. And I knew I wanted to be in medicine, but I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to be a nurse. And... I just kind of went through all the different – University of Davis had a wonderful class. You could spend one quarter working two weeks at a time in a different department in the hospital. To see oh, wow. Like. And oh, that's that, fantastic. It's wonderful because I got to know, oh. okay, I don't want to be in the lab. I don't want to be an x-ray tech. Uh, I want yeah. to be a physical therapist. You start, yeah, you just start narrowing yeah. it down. Yeah. Um, so you know the other thing too, um, I it's – very noble too. So, so you know, it sounds gruesome to say, "Oh, you know, you have to chop the person's legs off," to, yeah. and then you're studying your pel- the the pelvis, uh, the fractured pelvis and stuff. It sounds sort of gruesome, but you know, it's not because you're well, you're, you're gaining knowledge. Yes, to to, help. to then help people. And I injected with like this plastic that went in one side. I injected a red into the into the artery and a blue into the vein. And what we discovered. It came all the way over to the other side. Even though there is some separation in the joints, the, the blood wow. supply. So if you were to have a fracture and you were to close off something, cauterize it so it wouldn't bleed quite so much, it's right. going to get blood from everything else. And the the uh, cup of the hip is, it ha- is supplied with blood by every single blood vessel that goes mm. by it, you know. And... So it was kind of cool to do that. No, I loved it because, you know, I, I loved what I was doing. Was there some sort of, um, you know, you see these these videos on, on the Internet sometimes where doctors or nurses, they get in trouble. You know, somebody catches a video of them fooling around with a patient or a body. Yeah. When you were in the, the, I don't know what you would call it, the operating, the dissection room, did was there some sense of dignity even for this there body? There always was, but there will always be a few jerks, you know. And what you do is you then... Correct them and just say, you know, this is a gift they have given mm-hmm. us. Like, especially if they're getting around to the penis or something, they have to, they cover up their embarrassment by making jokes. Right, so right. So what you do is you just bring it back to the scientific level. You don't go there and you don't, you know, chastise them, but you just 
bring it back. You know, this is a human being, and let's be respectful. And remember, this is a gift. They didn't have to give their body. They chose to give their body. And usually, if you just say something like that, it brings Mm. it back down. Yeah. Yeah. And really, that's what it was. So, But overall, no. I I think there was always dignity. Right. Yeah, because, uh, you know, because they're aware also that, this is an honor to cut up. And plus, you wouldn't want a doctor or a surgeon to never work on a body. You don't want them to have on the live people to start with. So. Right. Um, yeah, that's wonderful. It also, uh, you know, people end up in the ground. People get burned up. Um, yeah. You know, I'm almost, you know, you haven't tried to convince me or anything like that, but I almost want to do the same thing. Make well, use of this body. For me, exactly. And it doesn't take up any space on the earth, and which I like. And my kids never have to deal with my buddy. They call up and UCLA will come over here oh, and get it. That's what they do. That's so mom. practical. And then I want to make sure there's money for a big party to celebrate that I lived, not have a body to bury. Yeah. You know? Right. Um so. I think it's a very noble decision and it's like, you know, you know, and how can I say it? A sort of a a harsh way of saying it. It's like, you know, what what good's your body when we're done, you know? Right. You, it might as and well go to go, go to a good on. cause. Now, I'm a big believer in in donating parts because I really hope people will do that because mm. it can save. So I haven't actually signed the final paper, but I am 73, 74. I don't think anybody wants my organs, but I heard one thing they really need is skin. Mm. And my skin's in really good shape. But I know that it's getting close where, you know what, it doesn't matter because there are lots of other people donating i think more people donating hearts than they are cadavers and they want the cadaver Mm. to be complete like you can't give up your heart and then be yeah they need that to teach the the doctors you know everything that's there right i was actually lucky i got a grant when i was in when we were going through med school the back is the most complicated set of muscles Mm. and on paper they differentiate it but nobody ever really sees it. It's it's really kind of crazy because it's so complicated. I think they and it's yet what doctors probably will see more than anything. So I got a, a grant to dissect a back out, and I know why they don't do it because it's a lot of work. But it was wow. so cool. I feel so lucky. My guys got to see a back dissected with all, and you can see why there's so many little movements, mm. so many muscles because. They can go from one vertebrae to the other. They can go from one to two, one to three. They can go sideways. They can go diagonally <laughs> to allow you all these incredible movements. So right. I think in doing that, I respect the body more. Now, when I was working as a therapist, which I continued to do, I taught mm-hmm. half time and worked as a therapist. Man, I brought out my Gray's Anatomy, or I would come out with a pencil and paper. My patients knew the anatomy oh, of their yes, injury. Yes. You could and explain then you it to them. You take better care of it. You understand more. Mm-hmm. Oh no, I really believe people they're cheated of not knowing what's on. Now if somebody can't take it, fine, <laughs> just do what I say. But if they can, but most of the time, if you present it in an interesting way and it's on black and white paper, there's no blood, they I found everybody wanted to mm. know more. Right. They really kind of got into it. So um so we learned a little bit about um, what you what your education was like, and you taught in um, you taught to undergrads about anatomy, and you uh, and cut up students. and graduate students. students. Yeah. Um, so wait, you earned a master's. Master's. Um, yeah. Did you ever uh, think of a PhD? Do you have a PhD? Well, that's what I started out in. I wanted to, if you know the truth, to tell you the truth, it was in 1984. 
I had been divorced. I was living in Davis. My whole social life was going down mm. to the bar. That was it. I was out in the country, and I just got so bored with it. <laughs> and everybody's like complaining, oh, I got to do something better with my wife. But nobody does. And I said, I have to get myself out of here. Because I was a practicing therapist, and you know, right. I had a good job. So I left. I took a job in Dublin. And no kidding. Dublin, Ireland. No. Oh, sorry. Oh. Dublin. <laughs> uh. Dublin um, near San Francisco. And uh, worked in a sports medicine clinic. And my boys were with their dad up in Auburn. And I would drive every weekend to get them. And my daughter was, uh, she was in junior college. So I went there. Well, at that time, that was 1983. Oh, my God. It was such a gold chain BMW world. I couldn't stand it. Really? Wow. Uh, it was just not me. I, I want to go back to the farm. So I wrote a letter in longhand. Mm -hmm. I still can't believe it because I couldn't <laughs> And I said, I requested, I wanted to get into the program in anatomy. And I said, I... It would be too hard for me to have to study the to take the MCATs. I mm. graduated high honors from Davis. I graduated in the top ten percent at UCSF. I believe I've shown that I can do graduate work. Mm -hmm. Could you please accept me in the PhD program? <laughs> and they did. I can't believe. It. And so, but then, you know, and I went because I wanted to meet people doing something else with their life. Right, which right. I have to this day these friends. And are you saying that you did this after you did some physical therapy? After yeah, you did thirty six years. After wow. No, let's see. I did therapy. I started med school in eighty four, and I finished. I started PT in seventy four. So there wow, was a ten year. Uh, Break and then after and all that, work, but I continued to work because I had to pay for myself to get through <laughs> school, you know. Mm -hmm. But I must admit, it wasn't as expensive as it is now. Mm. Thank goodness. And but, so, uh, after all that experience, you said that you then wrote the longhand request after to get into UCD because mm -hmm. I didn't want to have to take the MCATs. Right. I mean, I had the kids and I had my job and I had the farm. I was back on the farm to maintain. And so they let me in and, uh, and when you're a grad student, you have to keep a B average. You can't get a C or D, whereas mm. med students can. So the pressure. Oh on. wow, yeah. But uh, anyway, and I got through, and I worked on my thesis. But for a PhD, I had to do five orals and five um, major. And I go, you know mm. what? This is just too much. I'll never see my kids. I'm gonna. I just felt like I was. I started when I was 36, so by then I was 40, and I mm. said, this is just too much. And I didn't feel like I had to have a PhD. I got yeah. out of my class. <laughs> I met people. I loved the teaching. Well, then Pat, the professor I worked with, got asked, went to um, UCSF, was head anatomist there. And he asked me if I would come, but I didn't want to commute that far. And I right. didn't. And the woman who took over at that time, I really couldn't work with her because we, I just, I didn't really care for how she taught. She mm. later went on and became a holistic doctor, and she was wonderful at mm. that, and I'm really glad. But our yeah. teaching method um, was different, so so that's why I ended up quitting. Mm. But I'm wow. not sorry for any of it because <laughs> it changed my life in such a positive way. So yeah. for me, it wasn't that I had to have the PhD. It's that I had to mm. get out of the rut, and I mm. did. So it's okay to stop. You don't have to yeah. finish something. So what so did you do after that? You were in your early 40s when you stopped the uh, PhD Teaching, work? Let's see. I would have been like 42 maybe. Um, 
And then I continued with therapy and I switched it. I went in to visiting nurse association where I went to their homes. Oh, wow. And I did that for 14 years. And then, and I had the farm. And then right before, like when I was around, gee, I don't know, 62, I, I left the visiting nurse association and I went to work for a physical therapist in Davis and who did sports medicine. And I loved it. And you have to see, you have to, understand when I as a therapist I just love teaching them anatomy mm. so I never stopped teaching anatomy and I <laughs> loved being a therapist I spent my life making people better and I truly believe I was oh, a wow. very good therapist I mean I what I was good at and I and it's not because I'm brilliant but it's because the more anatomy you know the mm. better you are at diagnosing and I was mm. good at figuring out what was wrong and that's because right. I knew the anatomy mm. so so are you uh have you always been a detail oriented person? I imagine for anatomy that must really? be very it sounds very complex to me uh, anatomy I there must know. be so I've many always, parts I've always done anatomy and grown plants I am whatever <laughs> I mean on the farm I did but um well, I had a great memory back then <laughs> it sounds like you still do but I love sounds the like mechanics you still do. of it I love the physics of the body I love the mm. anatomy of the body. And the physiology, I mean, I don't mm. know. I just love the system of it. Yeah. The whole thing. Like, people become mechanics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was a mechanic of the body. I mean, right. Or I think orthopedists are mechanic of the body. But, I mean, it's inter- It's getting to know the intricate mm. uh, systems and how they balance each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you just take something for granted, like a scratch in your arm, what your mm-hmm. body does to heal that is truly a miracle. And it's just amazing. Has that always fascinated you? Always, Yeah. When, um, you know, can you think back to not, if not a moment, can you think back to a period where you said, hmm, I, I like this stuff, like this is what I want to do? Were you in your teens, 20s? No, because growing up, you know, I'd been in Catholic boarding school and then I went to college and it was never like, if I'd go to college, it's where are you going to college? <laughs> and of course, you had about three choices. Do you want to be a secretary? Do you want to be a nurse or do you want to be a teacher? And I guess I wanted yeah. to be a nurse because dad said, oh yeah, that would be great. I didn't really, you didn't really think for yourself in 1964. Really? No. What do you mean by that? Uh, did were there, Was there pressure on you and from no, all directions? I just understood. I didn't know. Wow. If I had known about hmm. um, uh, these medical examiners that figure, oh, I would have gone for that. <laughs> but right. I didn't know, didn't know, I, who knew about those jobs, you know? What about your father, though? He was clearly an educated man. Did he yeah. say, you know, I want something better for my daughter? No, it was never said. It was just I never wanted to disappoint him. Really? It wasn't ever like you have to do better. Mm. It just... I think this is a very typical thing in children growing up. And, and I, again, I say we do it to ourselves. I wanted his approval so much. Yeah. And my father, God bless him, he just, he didn't, he didn't want to spoil us. He wanted us to, grow. and I remember when I graduated from Davis, I'd been out of college when I had my daughter. So I was 20, how old was I? 26, 27. When I graduated and I graduated, no, 28, I graduated with high honors and I went up to Mm. dad and I said, dad, did you see I graduated with high honors? And he said, now don't be so full of yourself. Wow. And I remember that it (laughs) totally crushed me, but I told, I was able to tell him and Mm. I, and I realized he just, he was right. He didn't want me to be 
full of myself. Wow. But it was only for him to tell me, wow, what a good job. And he Did he ever tell you that? Yeah. Oh yeah. We did. <laughs> yeah. And we talked about it. I mean, that generation, anybody in their seventies will relate to this. It's like I mean, I was my daddy's girl, and I was on his lap all the time, and he always played with my fingers and all that. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I hit puberty, and he never touched me again. Oh, really? And that was traumatic. The little mm. girl doesn't understand why. And I think that's, I mean, oh, goodness. I spent my life trying to have men make, I felt like I wasn't worthy, spending my life wanting men to touch me, I mean, to hold me because and the affection I'm and, okay. Yeah, it's right. a very typical thing that happens, and I... Had real abandonment issues, and when uh, was that? Thirteen, yeah, twelve, something maybe like 13, that. Yeah. Do you, do you and understand? Then I was sent away to boarding school, so this all hit at the same time. Right. And it's like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> so, did your fault? Was it almost an overnight thing? Because I, you know, I, I don't know it that. It seems like it was overnight <laughs> to me. I'm sure that it wasn't, but I remember coming home from boarding school. I'm a 14 year old. I was always small, but I was kind of lanky, mm-hmm. and Dad. Always, we have dinner together. Always had dinner together. Then everybody would watch TV in the family room. But Dad would go in the <laughs> living room and read. So I would go in there, and I used to get on his lap. I tried to get on his lap. I was 14, and I remember that's when it really hit me. And my dad's, like, pushing me up. Oh, no, you're too big. You're too big. Go, go sit over there on the couch. <laughs> and I remember, and after much wonderful therapy, that the child is like, I'm being rejected. Right. And then I was sent to boarding school and I feel abandoned. But I've got through it all and I was able to tell my father all that. And I said, you stop saying I love you. And I said, but I understand. And I said, Dad, I said, Daddy, I forgive you. He was probably in his 90s when we had this wow. conversation. Mom and Dad and I by ourselves alone. And I hmm. said, you know, I think that's why I've married so much and that's why I always... Needed. If the man was gone, then I would find somebody else. It's like it was such a mm-hmm. need. But then I got through it and I forgave myself and and he, I forgave him. And he, he's so cute. We all cried. And he said, well, you know, I love you. He said, I am so proud of you. You are you are you're the one I'm the most proud of. I mean, it was just yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And it touched. I mean, it allowed me to go on then. And uh let me think. Oh, I lost track because I just was right there back at the kitchen. <laughs> oh, I know. He tried for like about, oh my God, a month. Every time we'd see each other, he'd go, um, um, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> and after a yeah. month seeing him, trying so hard to say, and I love you. I said, you know what, Dad? I know you love you. You don't have to say it anymore. <laughs> Those are just words. You show me your love. That's even right. better. Yeah. It was really cute, though. He tried. <laughs> Yeah, I can, um, you know, I'm not a father myself, but I have, um, sisters. I have two, no, I have three nieces. I have a, a baby sister who is 12 going on 13. Yeah. Um, it's and precious, we, yeah, and, very precious age. And we didn't have a father. Um, so I was the oldest, you know, I'm, I'm 30 and my sister's 12. So you can imagine. So never stop hugging her. And, and I make, and I, it's sort of, um, subconscious. I, because I, you know, I didn't have a father growing up. Right. She didn't have a father growing up. And but, but what you're saying about, you know, the girl becoming a young woman, That's and right. the father not you know, wanting physical attract attention it, because it's supposed to be bad. And yeah, and even as a big brother, not you know, I, I'm something maybe like that happened with yeah. us. And it, because you don't want to cross lines, you don't, you don't want right, someone but, to think like, hey, why is he holding his baby you sister? You should never. But that's who cares what people think. If you have a good heart mm-hmm. and all you're doing is giving her a hug. And 
I mean, I've always kissed my kids and I always will, you know. And so, and I remember, I remember their father saying when they were born, I never want to not hug my kids. And later they kind of got where they didn't. And I remember telling my son, Kevin, you know what? You need to remind him because that's mm. what he said. And so <laughs> then they started. And that's all it takes is right. somebody starting. And it, and it just, you just keep it to the affection of love and nothing, nothing questionable or dirty. Right. Yeah. So you should. And you should just say, you know, if you're proud and just give mm. her a hug. You don't have to embrace her for an hour and a half. You just have to give her <laughs> right. And and do you think um, because, for instance, my wife, Angela, she'll say, oh, you know, and, and this is along that line. <laughs> she'll, yeah. And I and I wonder, you know, if it's a cultural thing or if men need it, too. But it, it seems to often be women more often that want the affection or the actual verbal uh, you know, connection. Hey, tell me you love me. Tell me you yeah. think I'm beautiful. I think, it's some of, I think it's everything. I think, you know, we are the nesters and we want it. I think men want it too, but sometimes because of cultural, they don't think they do, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, if they don't, if they don't want it, if they think they don't want it, then they probably need to do some therapy because it shouldn't yeah. matter. To be told you're loved is a wonderful thing. Now, mm. if somebody smothers you, that's bad. <laughs> you know, and if somebody's on you all the time. Well, right. But you know what I'm saying? You find the healthy way to do it. But I do believe all you men out there, hug your children, even when they're in their teens, even when, mm-hmm. because, and your daughters, because they don't understand why, you know. And, you know, sometimes you want to kill them. So anytime <laughs> you want to kill them, just give them a hug. <laughs> How do you, you know, I, I have feelings like this sometimes and maybe a lot of other people do too. How do you put aside that pride? You know, sometimes you feel pride or you feel silly telling somebody you love them or embracing somebody. Yeah, you How do you put that aside? You, you're doing the best you can each day. And if somebody doesn't like it, it's their issue. Mm. It's not yours because you've chosen how you want to be. And uh, one is to recognize it. So in that question you just gave me mm-hmm. is your answer. How about the pride? What you do is it's not a matter of pride. Do something mm-hmm. else you can be proud of. <laughs> be proud of yourself to have the courage to be a loving mm. husband, a loving father, a loving brother, a loving uncle, mm-hmm. or just a loving human <laughs> being. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, I'm not Catholic anymore, but my religion is kindness, and I mm. learned that from mm-hmm. the from the, uh, the guy from Nepal. Oh, um, the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama said that my religion is kindness. Right, right. And I and do I fail? Yes, sometimes I mm-hmm. fail, and sometimes I'll say a jab because I'm really good at sarcastic humor. And I'll go, <laughs> okay, don't do that again, and I'll mm-hmm. or I'll apologize. You know, yeah. But it's so nice because. What you what you plant, you receive back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I know I've been talking like way too long. <laughs> yes. Um, so so for instance, uh, let me just ask this. Um, so say uh, you know you were saying you felt rejected as when you, when you were a young girl. Um, oh, you know, is that the red there? Yeah, that's the red. Yeah, let me polish this off. Yeah, Rosa de mm. Montalcino. I'd like to try that. It's going to taste strange after a while, but you always go for the second sip. Mm. Oh. First sip tames the tongue, and then you go into the second (laughs) sip to enjoy it. So we have a red wine here. I'm sorry. What was it? What did you say this was? It's by um, Mastroianni, and it's a Rosso de Mm. Montacino. And it's from 
obviously Italy. <laughs> <laughs> and so 2017, and this one is 14%. Mm. The other was 11. But I like to try wines from all over the world because mm. uh, my dad, I traveled all over the world. Mm-hmm. And you were all American? Like your father yeah. and your mother, or, well, your adopted parents. Yeah, my adopted parents, and well, actually my birth parents. I don't think my we don't know who my birth father was. Oh, really? So I don't know, but my I have a niece that's um, trying to help me with uh, DNA, and I, with, she thinks she found it, but I have to just take some time to really find out. It really doesn't matter to me because I my parents were my parents, you know, mm. mm-hmm. and I never felt. I never felt the void of a parent. I felt the void of, of information about family of blood. Mm. Mm-hmm. And anytime physical. Oh, wow. Interesting. I didn't know anything. I didn't know if anybody had cancer. I didn't know. Yeah, I can honestly say I never had this great need to find them, but I wanted wow. to because I loved mm-hmm. my parents so much. Wow. Do you think your mother was just like the kindest? Person, I mean, she was just so sweet, and she was not sweet like sweet, sweet, but just really wonderful. And when she died, somebody said to me, "It was really true." You know, your mother was a lady, and I looked up the definition of a lady. And what's that? And the definition of a lady is someone who makes everyone she comes in contact with feel comfortable. Mm, and, and she did that. And that she did. And I try to do that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, we talked a lot about your father. Um, your mother also had a big influence on you, of Very course. Much. She loved music. I went to many operas with her, and she told me the story. <laughs> and I didn't love it as much as she did, but I learned to appreciate an opera. opera. Mm. I I would hear. She said, "Listen, how they land on the note. They don't slide <sighs> up into the note." Mm. Oh, a hundred percent. I love when I'm cleaning the house. I'll play opera really <laughs> loud, and then I'll sing, and I sound wonderful. <laughs> I can't hear. <laughs> No, and she just, when we went, Mm. when we left Malta, here's another little lucky thing. Dad had bought a Volkswagen. We left Malta. We took the ferry over to Sicily and spent three months driving from the tip of Sicily Mm. through Sicily, through Italy, Switzerland, Germany, and Paris, visiting wine people along the way. Now, Mm. did I know how lucky I was then? No, I didn't. Every day... (laughs) But I do now, and I'm appreciative. But yeah. it's like, did I take that for granted? Kind of, but it wasn't like I took it for granted and was right, right. talking about it. It was just well, our life. I mean, you were, what, 15? 15. I mean, 16. yeah, I you don't know. 16 on the trip, and we had just gone the night before to this guy who was a retirement. I wish I could remember his name. And he had the best champagne I've ever had. In my life. <laughs> and it was in Champagne in France. Wow. And, uh and he and he only made like three cases or something of it, and he served it that night oh. at the dinner. And I told him, you know, I I, I, <laughs> I love this champagne; it's so good. And we just got along so well because obviously I talk a lot, and I just I love life, and I always <laughs> have. And so when I we got ready to leave, he said he asked my father. He said, "Is it okay? I would like to give her a bottle of champagne." <laughs> For her birthday tomorrow. Wow. And I and and I said, oh, thank you. <laughs> and it wasn't until we got out in the car and Dad said, you have no idea. He said, you appreciate now what that is. That is an exceptional bottle. And, you know, you are so lucky to have it. So guess how we drank it. It was the greatest story. We're driving on. This is what we did every day when we drove <laughs> up through Europe. We would go buy salami. 
cheese, and bread. Oh, God. And we would find some beautiful spot along the waterways, and we always had a picnic. Oh. And we opened that champagne and had a picnic out there with this beautiful <sighs> bottle of champagne. And beautiful then some place. local red along water. I remember it was along water, and it was this, this grassy area. It was beautiful. <sighs> it was wonderful. And we did that every day, and then at night we'd go to a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And that was my younger brother and I, because my older brother was in Germany at that time in the service. Oh, and wow, World War II. No, 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 not no, World no, War II, 19, no. This is 1963. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. no. So we're just, he was, uh, he was, you know, like, he was a Russian interpreter. Mm. So he was in Berlin. Right? Oh, he's a language he man. He was a language man. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and, goodness. Uh, but it's, I, I think back, I mean, we just, <laughs> we just went to it, all these, we were three weeks in Rome, three weeks in Venice. We were three weeks in Paris and dad went down to Montpellier which I've gone since and I love, but mom and I stayed in Paris and lived on the left <sighs> bank. And wow. oh my God, I spent a week at the Louvre and I feel like I just barely saw it. It's like, no, I was so lucky. Mother loved art and she taught us. Mm. And I tried to do this with my children and I, especially my son, Kevin, I think got it to look at art and to realize the strokes and the use of color and mm. how you can almost tell what artists did it by they have uh, they have their own <laughs> fingerprint on how they're painting. And so when I go to a museum and I'm standing in front of a Cezanne and I'm like three feet away or two feet away, it just, I am overwhelmed with realizing I am totally standing in the space that he stood in while he was painting. I'm right there. Wow. You know, from that, I'm, that, I, that energy is there and that just, I just feel so lucky. And in 62, when we went through Rome and we went through the Vatican, and my father also has met. Can you see why people? I mean, I just so. <laughs> my father. No, met it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Three popes. And oh, he had met a them. When met them, um, I want to tell you which ones: Pope Pius the Twelfth, Pope John the Twenty Third, and we were there. I mean, how does that happen? He was only there for you. Well, he was such a devout Catholic, and he gave money. I'm oh, sure. okay. <laughs> but, but he was such a good man. And mm-hmm. he became famous in line, so it kind of right, guess, right. grew. But he, because we were there, we got to sit up. It was Easter Sunday when Pope John came out, who's now a saint. But um, I loved Pope John because he wanted to bring every mm. all the religions together. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, we got to sit up on top of the columns in the Viet in the oh. Vietnam, in the Vatican. Right. And so he, oh, we were right at goodness. the same level with him, and he came out and blessed us all. And that's. Because of my dad, but again, I kind of, how? Oh, okay, I didn't realize. Yeah, my dad just met the pope. That's all. Good. I knew it was lucky, but you don't realize how lucky. When you're that young, you don't. I mean, there's no way you can know. I just, I mean, I felt, wow, we got great seats. (laughs) This is good, but you don't realize so later to really appreciate it. Yeah, I think uh, you know you. One thing about you that I knew the moment I ever saw you. we met a couple times, I, you know, and the thing, you know, you just have this vitality, this love for life um, where you just get so much out of a moment, it seems like. But I think you learned it or observed it. Um, you're, it seemed like your father had that same bit, too, you know, you're, and your parents, I should say, because yeah. you're talking about this bottle of champagne that you had. It's very special. You find a beautiful place to sit and have lunch. And, that was and my, that was my that's dad. living. That's, that's what living, living is. Exactly. And we did that all over Europe. He never, we went from the simplest meal for lunch and we didn't go to the fanciest. And I like that. I mean, and dad never, ever, 
told anybody who he was. He <laughs> I mean, no, he right. would never. And, you know, wannabes go, well, I'm not sure this is good. <laughs> Just drink it. The best spot, glass of wine is the one in your hand. <laughs> if it's not yours and you're somebody's, just be grateful you have a glass of wine. I remember this young girl coming up, like she was in her 20s, and coming to my dad and asking, Dr. Omo, Dr. Omo, what's, what's the best wine? <laughs> and he said, what tastes good to you? And he said, mm. if you love a $3 bottle of wine, God bless you. I wish I did. <laughs> and it, that's really what matters. Mm. It, it needs to be what you like. you know. And if you mm. like your red wine colder, fine. Mm. Then you drink it. <laughs> that's okay. And and it's like um, I mix. I blend in my glass. Mm-hmm. If I have a wine that's a little too much tannin, and so many wines now are way too jammy and fruity mm. for me, but I'll keep them and I'll mix them with one that's a little too mm-hmm. dry. So your father, suppose he were a, suppose instead of you, I were uh-huh. interviewing your father and I brought some bottle of wine. Mind you, I know nothing about wine. Suppose I brought, I, I picked out a bottle that looked nice and I bought it, $25 bottle of wine, and I poured some for him and we were talking like we are now. Uh, what do you think, it, was he ever the critic like, oh, you pick this bottle? I mean, would he pretend no. to enjoy it? What would he do? No, no, he would just give you an honest. We actually did that once. I had friends over and they wanted to know. Um, so we got four Chardonnays mm-hmm. and we sat and tasted it with him. <laughs> I don't really care for Chardonnay, but we tasted it. And you know what he did? He he tasted it because he used to taste like 100 bottles a day. <laughs> and, um, and you say taste, you mean a sip, oh, not no, drink. They a... have a, a, I used to go in when I was a little girl, he'd be there tasting the wine. He had a hose and he had a drain on the floor and this little white uh, alcove with a shelf. And then he'd taste the wine and then spit it out because you get Right, drunk. right. But I do remember, and then he put down a number and then he'd get, taste the next one and then put down a number. And it wasn't disrespect. You just couldn't drink it all. No, I mean, you would, you can't. you're you tasting it. it. They still do that. And, and I mean, you should do that. You shouldn't swallow because <laughs> you'll get drunk and then you can't really taste. Mm-hmm. But I do remember asking dad, I, I remember saying, Daddy, what if it's really good? <laughs> this is how he is. He doesn't make a big deal. He just says, I swallow. And then he, just would... <laughs> he, he had the dress, the best sense of humor. Oh, my God. But he was very dry. It took me years to realize it wasn't that he wasn't excited like I was. He just didn't show up mm. like I did. You know, I speak English. I speak Italian and French and English. I talk with my hands. I do have a a great love of life. And he was more stoic, even though yeah, his he was. He even was though his brain stoic. was firing off internally. Maybe yeah. he wouldn't show oh, it. No, and he was also of that generation. You know, mm. but he was. But he did have a great, a wonderful <laughs> sense of humor. Oh, it, it sounds like he didn't so complain things. either. He wasn't one to complain. Let me say, he wouldn't, he would never complain with work. He would never complain at work. Did he complain at home? Yes, he did. Because, oh my God, the thing he loved most was having hot plates. We were sitting around. (laughs) Funniest story were my friends. I had a dinner party. I had this. He lived with me after my mom died. We tried for Mm -hmm. a year. I couldn't do it. He he fired every caregiver I got. I come home. I came home. He's ninety one. He's on the roof with a chainsaw. Oh, I couldn't do it. I had to put him back. And not in a home. He was in a wonderful senior center. But I go, right. Dad, because I, I can't go to work. It's killing me. Please do it for me. But we had a dinner party, and we we're all coming up with wishes. And you know, there's all these grandiose wishes, world peace, and 
oh, I hope there's rain in the future. And we forgot to ask dad. Dad's at the end of the day. Everybody there is like, you know, 40s, 50. And dad said, don't you want to know what I wish? And I go, oh, yes, dad. I'm so sorry. He goes, I wish the plates were hot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I ran in, stuck him in the microwave. I heated his plate up and put it down for him. But that was, that was so great. But he wasn't. No, he wasn't a big complainer. Hmm. He just he worked all the time. You know, he worked. He went. I grew up with him, getting up in hmm. the morning, and you know, we'd all, he'd make breakfast, oatmeal and raisins, oatmeal every morning, and we'd. He would go to work. He'd come home at lunch every day. He would eat lunch and lie down, take a nap for 25 minutes, go back to work. Then he'd come home at 5, and then he'd go out and work in the vineyard. He had wow. a vineyard, and he had an orchard. Um, he always grew our vegetables. See, I was very lucky. Wow. Dad did not like canned food or anything like mm. that. Everything we grew was fresh, and Mom went to a special meat market. Anyway, mm. I just, yeah, he had a wonderful mm. attitude, and I think that's from traveling Europe so much. Mm-hmm. And we always ate salad. That was after our dinner. Mm. Never before. And I thought everybody did, but I think that's the French influence. And he was in Brazil. Anywhere there's grapes, he would be mm. gone for weeks at a time. But it's okay. He would, and I would go with him out to the university airport and saw him. They'd take him in a little little airplane when he would constantly be coming down here, you know. He was trying to develop grapes that would grow in hot climate. Everybody mm. knew it would grow in cool. Right, right. But he developed grapes that would grow in a hotter climate. Mm. So I have anyway. a couple. I have a couple more for you. I think um, I don't want to hold you too long, and maybe someday we can do it again. I, I find you fascinating. You're yeah, so, I, you're, I just you're, don't want. I mean, your ears, people, must be burning. No, no. Uh, some people, uh, most people are not. I shouldn't say most people, but a lot of people I talk to have nothing to say. So not not on, not on this platform, but I, I'm saying in the world, people just don't have much to say sometimes. So I appreciate that you have so much to say. Um, so uh, what what are you know you know your life's clearly not done. You know you're you know at this rate you may outlive no. me. Um, <laughs> what are you most proud of so far in your life? What what are some things you're most proud of? I'm proud of the work that I did with people. I spent my life making people feel better. But the proudest thing I am I'm proud of is my are my three children. Mm. I have a daughter, fifty three, who has is married to a wonderful man, has four beautiful grown daughters. I have a son who's autistic Asperger, and I take my hat off to him because he had such a hard life, and mm-hmm. people made fun of him. And he is doing so well, and he's married to this beautiful young woman, beautiful woman, and they they are living in Colorado. And I'm so, I am so proud that mm. I can give him support. Mm. And they will always live, you know, just making it, mm-hmm. but they're doing it. And I just, I just, the courage that he has. And then my youngest son, Kevin, who is here in Ventura and the director of downtown uh, Ventura organization. And I am so proud of him because he is just, he's, he loves this town and he just wants to bring Mm. it into a better life. And that's why I retired and moved down here. Mm. Um, And the, and the third thing I'd say I'm proud of is that I really choose to be kind Mm. You know, and I want to continue doing that always. And I and I'm kind of proud of my quick six sense of humor. Too. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It, it it warms up a room. Um, you're Thanks. very you're very nice to be around. Thank you. Um, so my last question, and with all due respect, who the hell are you? 
I'm a very lucky woman. I think my karma is amazing. I must have done something great in my last life because so many good things have come to me. And uh, I am uh, I am Jean-Marie. My father named me Jean-Marie Omo, but I go by Jeannie, the spelling. <laughs> and that's who I am. And it's many, many personalities because I'm Gemini. <laughs> so, um, I... I What's lovely now is that I'm in this, there's a group of us that live here together and I I love art and they're all artists and I cook for them and it, we have like our, our artist compound and Will is part of that mm. and the greatest joy, they're all my boys, you know, and mm. the girls live upstairs and it's like, I, I'm very proud that I haven't let anything put me down completely. I mm. did suffer. I had a horrible nanny. And I've had some horrible experiences. Everybody does. But I don't even think of them. I just mm. let them go. I don't carry a bit of that. So, uh, and that's what I think you have to make choices about. Mm. You know? So I'm very, uh, I'm very grateful to be me and I'm very grateful to wake up. <laughs> well, Jeannie, um, I hope you never feel like you talk too much. We love you. Oh, thank, uh, you. thank you for welcoming into your home. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.